Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Martha B. Thank you. Um, I feel like I'm about to give you guys a lecture on calculus. Let's do that. And now everyone can leave. No, I'm just kidding. So my name's Martha. I am a compulsive overeater. Hi. Hi. And I'm really honored to be here tonight. I want to thank Lucy and Michelle for asking me to share. Uh, I also want to welcome all the newcomers to the meeting who are newcomers who have just come in the doors for the first time and those of you who are coming back again. Um, this is for you. It's always for the newcomers, the most important person in the room. And I actually consider myself, I don't get up and get a hug or a chip, but I consider myself a newcomer every single day. Because if I forget that and I start to get a little complacent, that's when I get into trouble. So I identify as a newcomer. I also identify as somebody who has had two and a half years of abstinence and have been in program for two and a half years. Um, so what it was like. Um, probably a very familiar story. I grew up in a home with an alcoholic drinking father and a narcissistic mother. Um, I have two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, and when I look back on our childhood, I consider ourselves sort of feral animals who decided to raise ourselves as best as we could, and one of the ways we did that was to make sure that our needs were met because no one else was going to make those needs met. No grown-ups were. So we kind of raised ourselves, and that's a dangerous thing. Uh, three kids in the Midwest raising themselves where there was nobody in charge. Um, and it was interesting because from the outside, we looked like something that could have been on television as far as the most normal family on the block. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was an engineer. My dad was a really crafty drinker who drank from the time he got home, about 5.30, until he passed out on the couch. We were uh, often told by my mom to go wake up our dad for dinner. And to this day, I still remember the terror of the three of us trying to figure out who was going to be the one to poke him on the shoulder to say dinner was ready because he would just leap off the couch like ready to punch or ready to yell. We didn't know what we were going to get. And what's really weird is, probably not even that weird, that was our reality. That was normal. That was normal to us was to um, have a dad passed out on the couch, a really angry, really unhappy mom slamming a dinner on the table. Um, I, my older brother was very abusive because he was struggling with his own anger and fear and loneliness and inability to cope with what we were given. And I tell you about this not because I'm stuck here or even sad about it, because I'm not. I'm actually not sad about my childhood, but I do think 
that we need to know where we come from so that sometimes when there's a really tricky piece in our program we need to unravel, we can find maybe where it started to tangle. And for me, I struggle mightily with perfectionism, and I know I'm not the only one in the room with that um, character defect. But if I did everything perfectly, then my world would be ordered. And from that, I struggle as an adult. As a 55-year-old woman with two kids of my own, I've been married 26 years, I struggle from the things that happened from the family that I was born into to where I am right now. And what program has done for me in one sense, though, is it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse anymore. And for 53 years, it was an excuse to overeat. Uh, I didn't get enough of the things we're supposed to get when we're little. I didn't get enough safety. I didn't get enough love. And I didn't get enough attention in the way little girls are supposed to get attention. I got a lot of the wrong attention. I had a brother who loved to beat me up. I had a dad who didn't understand boundaries of bodies. Um, I had a mom who was just very competitive with me from a really early age. And I'll share this one story, which is... Um, I matured young. My, my body... I was like a tomboy. And so... I hid under big t-shirts, I was athletic, I had wanted to really, I, I really wanted to be the strong woman that Michigan in 1960s didn't really allow strong women, so I thought, well, maybe if I act like a boy and dress like a boy, then I can be that strong person that I want to be, and um, so... I hit fourth grade, which is really young back then, and it just was like, boom, the curves popped out. And um, my mom at dinner said, when your boobs get bigger than mine, you got to move out. And we all laughed like that's so funny. And I think now I have these two daughters and I would never, I would never even think that, let alone say that and think that was funny. So from, from the time I was really aware of my body, it was... It was not my friend. It was not my friend. But my friend was ding-dongs. My friend was Cheetos. My friend was meatloaf and ice cream. And all the things that sedated this body that I felt not at home in for so many reasons. And the other thing that sort of peppered my developing childhood was... I was constantly being hurt physically by other people and then just sort of randomly. Like I was the kid who would trip over the curb and then land on the car and then cut my lip open rather than just the kid who sort of stumbled. It would be like the cartoon character. It was just a lot of chaos sort of around me that often came out in accidents and um, things like... I, I was crippled by migraines from the time I was two years old. I used to bang my head on the wall to try to get rid of that pain. Um, I had anxiety. I uh, was very accident prone. When I was six, my older brother, who has tormented me for many years, but it's better now and I'll get to that later, shot me. He found a gun in my grandparents' house in the 70s. And we didn't know about guns because we'd only seen them on TV. So we thought, like, you know, a flag pops out sort of thing. But 
he found this gun, and I was six, and he was nine, and he said, if you move or you say a word, I'm going to blow your brains out. And I was like, okay. He said, oh, you said okay. He took the safety off, and he shot me in the chest. And I do think that a lot of where I went was from the fear of all those things. It was fear of parents who couldn't really raise us right. It was fear of being hurt physically, which came true a lot of the time. It was fear of never being good enough. Fear of like not even being allowed to take up the space on the planet that I had. And that feeling followed me for many, many, many years. In fact, even now as an adult, it's better now. Everything's so much better because of program, and I'll get to that when I'll get to where I am now. But I have this compulsion to ask people, am I entitled to this feeling of X or this feeling of Y? Like, am I entitled to be angry or jealous or frightened? Like, I never felt entitled to my emotions. And it was undone in a kind of constant, repetitive way of any of you who grew up in a home with an alcoholic parent, reality is skewed. And you don't know what you're going to get from minute to minute. So you start to doubt everything within yourself. Like, is this feeling of joy allowed at this moment? So I still sometimes, even now, will say, I'll ask someone, my husband, who, this is not his job, and, and I shouldn't ask him this, but I'll be like, am I entitled to be upset about this? And whatever he says would be, yeah. You know, if he said, yes, you're entitled, I'd be like, okay, good, because I'm really upset about it. And if he said no, then I'd think, okay, I'm defective, and I would eat. That was how I dealt with things. Um, and I, re- I can tell you what was in my Easter basket when I was two years old. I can tell you what was in my, what candy was in my stocking when I was six. I can tell you what kind of candy bar it was. Because those are the moments that were electric to me. Those were the moments that, that kept me alive, I think, in hindsight now. And my sponsor and I, we talk about, you know, how we call them character defects, but really what they were is they were mechanisms for some of us to stay alive and to stay whole in the way that we could. And for me, that that mechanism was, if I have a strong feeling, it's probably not a valid feeling or it's the wrong feeling, so I think I'll eat something, and then the feeling will be of full and sated and content and cared for and safe. So from a very early, really from probably birth, those things were confused for me. Security meant feeling full to the point of, I know you guys know that feeling, full to the point where nothing else really matters because you're full. Um, so I developed young, got a lot of unwanted attention for that, moved a lot. My parents divorced when I was 10, um, and my mom kind of just went where the wind took her, which was usually not a good place for a kid to be, but my brothers and I didn't have much of a choice, so we followed her. Um, we moved her to California when I was 14, and we moved to the Palisades from northern New Jersey, which any of you who've lived in northern New Jersey and then lived in the Palisades, kind of a culture shock. Um, Pretty girls with long blonde hair, bodies like boys, which was always sort of the thing I gravitated to, like that was my goal, but I had boobs and hips and 
I wasn't working. It wasn't working. I wasn't fitting in. So um, I had, in addition to food, I had a respite in academics. So I come from my, my family, which is strange and kind of off-kilter, but really into education. And, and it was sort of like that was expected was that my brothers and I were going to do well in school, and we did. And it was a safety for me because... I could pick up a book, I could open a book, I could fall into it, and then I could pull myself back out. And there are very few habits that go hand in hand as well as reading for this. Zip it in the bag and stick it in your mouth. And so I had, that was my solace was, oh sorry, was um, the library and 7-Eleven. And I can even remember when 7-Eleven opened in our neighborhood and um, they were open from 7 to 11, which was like like this huge thing, because this is Jackson, Michigan in the 1960s, when stuff wasn't even open on Sundays, let alone 7 to 11. So I would ride my bike to the 7-Eleven. I would stock up. I don't need to tell you what I stocked up on, because I'm sure a lot of you in here stocked up on the same stuff. And I would stop at the library, and I would check out as many books as they let me. I would ride my bike home, and I would go into my room, and that that to me was heaven, was the stack of library books and the stack of snacks and the chaos around me just went away when I dipped into that safety of reading, really. And um, so I had, I had a very introverted way of coping, which I also think most of us in the room, it's, it's a disease of isolation. And I don't know which comes first, but I am an introvert, and I, want, I took a quiz. There's a book out that's great on introvertism. Introvertism? <laughs> Being an introvert. And it has a checklist on the front, are you an introvert? And the, I, I was like 190% an introvert. But at the same time, I don't want to be lonely and I don't want to isolate. So the things that interest me were things that were solo things, uh, we moved a lot. I had divorced parents at a time when it was like, they listed divorces in the newspaper. It, it was like, it, it just, it was, it was, you were a criminal. And they were listed in the paper. And I kid you not, there were friends whose moms said, you can't play with Martha. And when I look back on it now, it's just like, I, I, I kind of have to laugh because it just seems so bizarre, but that was the reality of it back then. So I had the stigma of having a drunk dad, a mom who was in the theater. She was an actress, and that's where she got her high from, was people clapping in her makeup, and she was always at a rehearsal. And then, um, so we moved a lot. My parents divorced. We moved to California. I... Um, I started to look at other ways of lessening my pain. So I became promiscuous. Um, I started to do all the drugs that were available to kids in the Palisades in the 70s, which was a lot. Um, I became sort of rebellious, but also at the same time, I always did well in school. Um, my brother and I would go on these shoplifting sprees, and we had a word for the, the stuff that we stole, and we called it now and laters. And we'd go into, like, a Walgreens, and we'd just fill a bag with stuff. And 
it, it, this is my older brother who sort of traumatized me all the time, but we were so, like, connected when we'd go shoplifting. I loved going shoplifting with my brother. And I probably own immense the Walgreens in Jackson, Michigan, in the Westfield Mall, but I don't think they're there anymore. <laughs> and I haven't been back in a long time. But you know what? That just made me think, I, I may need to get on the Internet and see if that Walgreens is still there. To this day, when I eat a mint, we used to steal the mint. I'd be like, oh, that's that Walgreens mint that my brother and I used to shoplift. So anyway, um, moved to California, started trying other ways to tune out. They didn't work, though, for me. Um, I could not drink at all because I got whatever it is that sometimes when your parents are an alcoholic, you're allergic. And I got that, for which I am grateful. But sugar is really the same thing, only it's what good girls can do. Good girls can go and stock up on the snowballs with that peel of marshmallow on top. Um, and so I was active and athletic, but I ate a lot. But it didn't show. It didn't show externally. And I, and I always kept it down. Um, I always kept the food down. There was a lot of it, and I kept it down. Uh, and then in high school, um, I sort of went the other way and kind of just my stress made it so I couldn't eat. So I, I kind of just was so stressed they stopped eating, which, you know, in hindsight, that's the disorder coming up in a different way. Um, I went to UCLA, and at UCLA uh, I was such a perfectionist that the disease really kind of kicked in high gear because... I was a little, I was very isolated in college. Um, I commuted to UCLA. I didn't get involved in anything. I worked at the UCLA bookstore, and um, I was afraid to go do the, the eating restaurant thing. Like, I didn't know how to do it. Like, I didn't know how to get the tray and get in line and get the food and then pay for it, which is such a simple, I could have just said to someone, like, how does it work? And I have all these different places to eat. So I, there was a, a, a building in the middle of campus that had a basement with couches and a vending machine with these sandwiches that probably had been in there for, I don't know, weeks. And I would buy that sandwich in the triangle in the little packet. And that's why I'd sit on the couch and I'd eat them and I'd be so miserable and I'd be so overwhelmed and I had to get straight A's and I was not really connected to my family at that time for a couple different reasons. Um, and it just... I was so afraid all the time. And I really, I think that this is an issue of fear. Compulsive overeating is just fear. And anything, any other feeling that comes with it, like anger or depression or out of control, I really think we can funnel them all down into the kernel of fear. Because I think that's what motivates a lot of us to try to turn our, turn our little brains off. My brain is very busy. My mind is very busy, and it was a good way to tune it out. So um, some good things. I met a great guy in my 20s. We got married. We had a baby named Grace, who was the light of my life. Um, I gained a lot of weight in my pregnancy, but I kind of didn't really care because I was like, I'm for sure going to lose it after. Like, it just didn't even occur to me that that was going to be an issue. But I gained so much that there was some, like, health issues with the pregnancy. And that was the first time that my weight sort of was the, the health side of it popped up. 
Um, and then when Grace was three and a half, my husband and I had another baby named Ella who died at birth. I had a uterine rupture. Um, and I was 41 weeks pregnant, and she weighed 10 pounds, and she didn't come home. And I think for me sometimes, like, that was my body at its worst, and the pain of that, I'm, I'm you know, being shot, stumbling into parked cars, having your uterus rupture during childbirth. Um, I had a deep vein thrombosis a couple years ago. It was like my body was constantly at odds with myself, and I often felt really disconnected from it because of that. I felt like this, like, I think there was a scary movie where there's a brain that goes around from the 50s and, and like, makes a sucking sound and eats people. I felt like that. I felt like I was the brain. I, I was in tune with the brain, but I was not in tune with the body. Um, and after we lost Ella, I... I had trouble remaining optimistic and food was such a great tool for me at that time grace was little we'd lost ella we didn't know you know how were we going to get baby number two because after we lost ella it was like that's all i wanted i had to have another baby i became obsessed with that um but i also you know i i ate a lot i ate that grief um, and I was so angry at my body. I was so angry at it that I thought, I'll punish it by just shoveling this crap in it. And I would do things like, those of you who have heard me share, know, like when you go to Ralph's and there's the 24-pack of party cupcakes with the super bright frosting, like Michelle's jacket, that's the color of the frosting. I mean, they're really there to bring to two classrooms, and everybody can have one out of the two classrooms. I would buy them, and I would hide them in my bedroom closet, and I would eat them to fall asleep. And um, I knew it was weird, and I knew it was, like, not healthy, but I couldn't stop. And um, we made a decision 20 years ago that we were going to adopt. So we did an international adopt adoption. We adopted a little girl named Charlotte from Guatemala. And it was stressful in our home. We had a five-year-old and a seven-month-old who had just arrived, and um, there was some tension in the marriage from the stress, I think, of what we had gone through. And I ate and ate and ate and ate, and I was afraid, and I ate. And then, um, you know, the only time I could really lose great amounts of weight is if I had a crush on somebody. So I'd actually, like, go out and look for someone to get a crush on. So I was like, okay, i got to go find someone and, and, like, become obsessed with them so that I don't want to eat anymore. And it worked. It was, like, this fantastic tool. It was like, okay. And then I think, okay, I got it now. I'm good. I just needed to, like, slim down. And, and then, of course, you know, life would come back and I'd be right back in the food. Um... And then my kids grew up, and uh, Charlotte struggled a lot in uh, her teen, early teen years. And I became a control freak because I had to have her live the way I needed her to live so that our lives would be okay. But you can't control someone else. And so we were butting heads, and I was eating, and she was off the rails, and she continued to spiral. And um, I'm telling this because this is how I got into the rooms. 
Charlotte ended up needing to go away for treatment for a variety of reasons. She went to a residential boarding school in Utah for girls, and we Skyped therapy. So I don't know if it's a, you're online, and she's in Utah with her therapist, and my husband and I are on our computers, usually he's at work and I'm at home, and we would have therapy that way. And we'd be like, Charlotte, you're doing this wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong, and if you want to come home, you have to do this, and this, and this, and you've got to get well, and it's your fault, and it's not us, and... I would dip out of the screen and take a bite of a cinnamon roll and dip back into screen. And that was the only way that I could get through those Skype therapies was to medicate. And, and I'm berating her online about the crap she needs to get together. And I'm dipping down like this and I'm coming back up. And the light bulb went off and I said, I, I'm, I need help because this is not going to go away on its own. And I'd known about OA. And I, I, oh my God, name a diet, I did it. I was such a good dieter for six weeks at a time, like the best. And that was my perfectionism too. It was like, I am going to be such a perfect dieter. And I would do it for six weeks. I'd be great. And then I'd be like, oh, that person looked at me weird and I'd eat a pizza. So (laughs) that didn't work. And I knew about OA and I knew I was a compulsive overeater and I knew that there was something wrong with me. Um, but I didn't, and, and it, it, it comes to a little bit of what I want to say, um, steps, uh, step six, when we say we're ready for God to remove all those defects of character, I wasn't ready because if I did that, everything was going to fall apart because I had to control everything. And the only way I could survive was to eat. So if I took the eating out, then all the control would go. And then, oh, my God, what a mess we'd have at our house. But I also knew that I was going to die. I mean, you know, I'd go to the doctor, and the doctor would say, you know you're morbidly obese. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And I could just, I could get to the moon and back easier than I could lose the weight that I need to lose. I can't do it. So I went into my first OA meeting on um, April 21st. 2016, I went to the 100-pounder meeting in Westchester. I walked in the door. I did the thing where you sit there and you sob and you cry and everyone seems like happy and I'm like, they shouldn't be happy because I'm really unhappy. And and the meeting was the great a great meeting for me to go to. And I thought to myself, okay, this I, at that time I was 53 and I was having health problems and I was addicted to food, like really addicted to food. I, I was thinking when I think, I think a lot. <laughs> I'm a thinker, and I was thinking back that, you know, a lot of the anger I have for people whose addictions are not my addiction that have affected me, I'm like, you know what, that's so messed up that they would do that, and then I thought, there are times, I don't know if I'm alone in this, I hope I'm not, because it's sort of embarrassing, but I think if somebody had come to our house with a gun and said, I'm going to take your kids, and I was like mid-bite, I'd be like, and they were like, you can't finish that? Or we're going to take your kids? I'm not sure, honestly. And, and I say it as a joke, but I couldn't put it down. I could not put it down. And with OA, I said, okay, I'm a perfectionist. I am going to be the best newcomer that has ever walked into an OA meeting. And so, you know, right away I, I, I said, I, I'm going to do it. And I bought everything, everything that they had on sale. And I went to tons of meetings. Um, I got it right away. I was doing the lingo because this was my first 12-step program, but I was just like, you know, keep it simple. And um, I, I, I was like, I was going to be poster child for OA. Um, and then 
early on, everyone's like, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, but get the right sponsor. And it's interesting because most of my meetings were South Bay meetings because I live in Westchester. And I, uh, someone had said, oh, you know, there's great meetings in Santa Monica. So I went to a Santa Monica meeting. I heard a woman share. I was like, she's amazing. But I didn't have the courage to go up to her and ask her to be my sponsor. And then... I was in a Culver City meeting, and I had been out of town, and I struggled. So this was really early on, like a couple of weeks in, and um, I had gotten the time wrong. I thought the meeting was at noon, and it was 1. And I got there at, you know, 11.15, and I was like, I should just go home, because I'm not going to hang out here for an hour and 10 minutes. What am I going to do? And the voice said, you know what? Stay. So I stayed. And my sponsor, who has never been to that meeting, I think, ever, came to that meeting, and it was like... Oh my God, she's here, and I'm not. I can ask her to be my sponsor. She has been my sponsor for two years, over two years now, um, and with her guidance and her support, I've worked the program in a way that I don't have to be perfect. Because the minute I start to be perfect, that's that's when I start messing up, and and it's a really it's a double edged sword because. There's nothing wrong with being a conscientious human being who wants to do the right thing and do really well and dot their I's and cross their T's. But a lot of us are really judgmental, and we use it as a as an escape. Like, well, you know what? I had, like, an extra piece of this, so I'm a really bad person, and I can't do program. And those are the thoughts that would go through my mind. And... I would say, you know what, it's progress, not perfection. And I sometimes don't even see the progress, but when I look back on the two and a half years that I've been in program, I'm a different person. I am a hugely different person. And that's because if you keep coming back and you work the program in the way that's effective for you, then it works, and you become the person that you were meant to be. And I was so lost in all my controlling, judgmental, angry, fearful, feeling sorry for myself. It's so sad. It's so sad that I'm, you know, the perfectionist that I am and all the pity and, you know, how can I, how can I, uh, Find my way in this program, which is a gift. This program is a gift. How do I find my way in a program that's really easy for some of my character defects to start chipping away at my progress? Like, I need to go to a lot of meetings. And I went through a little phase not that long ago where I became extremely resistant to going to meetings. To the point where it was like, I knew I needed to get to the meetings, and I knew that if I went to the meetings, I'd feel better, but I, I, I couldn't get myself to them. And so I started to just think, okay, maybe I, maybe I don't need program in the way I needed program at the beginning. Maybe I can kind of make program work for me if I exclude parts I don't want to do anymore. And... So much of my old stuff came back so fast. I was crabby. I was um, resentful. I was less willing 
to do the things I knew I needed to do to be well. And that brings me to the thing of, like, if I had to say one thing that is both the most important thing and also the easiest thing and the hardest thing, a little dichotomy there, it's the willingness. So if you have the willingness, you have the program. I truly believe that. But the willingness comes from making the steps to working the tools. You, you don't just get a cup of willingness handed to you and then you're like, okay, um, this will keep being refilled every morning when I wake up because I'm in OA. It gets refilled every morning when I wake up because I meditate, because I pray, because I go to meetings, I take an obligation at the meetings, I read, and I call my sponsor, and I keep track of my food, and I sponsor. And if I do all those things, my cup of willingness is filled up. And the days where it's not filled up, I'm kind of entrenched enough that it doesn't matter because I'll get it through the day in some way. I'll get an outreach phone call from somebody or I'll go to a meeting reluctantly and then someone will say that one word at the meeting and I'll be like, that's the word that I needed to hear today and that will replenish my cup of willingness. Someone was at a meeting a while ago and I just didn't want to be there. And she, she I didn't know her. She, she hadn't been to a meeting before and she, she was sat there and she said, I just, I'm praying for the willingness and I thought, me too. That's what I need. I need that willingness. And when I do my steps and I read, and I, I read the OA 12 and 12, I don't want to say compulsively, but I read it diligently and with great joy. Every, it says it every time I read I feel like it's that it's Groundhog's Day where it's like the same day lived over and over. But when I read the OA 12 and 12, it's like I hadn't read it yesterday. I hadn't read it. It's like, oh my gosh, it's all right here. And then it kind of, as the day goes, it sort of dissipates. And then I come back to it the next morning. I'm like, oh my God, it's all right here. So for me, that that's what keeps me grounded and in program. And... I struggle. I do. I mean, I I feel sometimes, because I don't have tons of time in there. I have two and a half years, which really, it's not that much. And I, I, I'm grateful for it, but, you know, it's not eternity. Um, but I think, I think the thing is, is that if I keep saying I'm a newcomer, that sort of zest for program will continue to, to trickle down to me. And as soon as I start getting cocky and like, oh, you know, I, I can do this, then I, I, I slip and I struggle. And um, it's interesting because, you know, I do, I'm really happy, I'm really content, I'm really fulfilled, I'm really abstinent, which for me, that's my... That's my hammock that supports me. Is this three meals a day and an optional snack? And I always joke, compulsive reader, when is the snack optional? But um, like that's my that's my cradle, that abstinence, and I hold it very dear. Um, and I I compare myself to others who are in program, and I'm like they're doing it better. And they're doing it better. They're doing it worse, but they're doing it better, and they're doing it better. And that's this old competitive perfectionist, like, 
unlikable character defect that I have, which is, you know, comparing myself to everyone else. And, you know, I, I struggle with accepting my body as it is on all levels. I have some chronic illnesses that have plagued me since I was in my 20s that aren't going anywhere, but I live with them. I skirt death, as I told you, like left and right, dodging bullets and, you know, ending up in the ER with a deep vein thrombosis. But this very wise woman said to me not too long ago, she said, you know what you could do is you could flip all those feelings about your body and instead of everything it's not doing for you, think about what it is doing, which is 99% of the time it's doing amazing. They're amazing. Bodies are amazing. Our hearts are beating and our blood is flowing through our veins and we can talk and we can think and we can move all these parts. And I thought, you know what? I have so much power in this body. Um, It doesn't look like maybe it wouldn't be the body I'd pick out of a magazine. But I also know, like, I have the strength in this body that there's a reason for it. And um, I'm strong in it. And program has allowed me to be like, you know, there is no perfect ideal physical presence for me, but there is an ideal balance of program and abstinence and recovery and joy in it. And so I know that some of the people in this room, because it happens in every room, are struggling. And I think it does us sometimes a disservice when people Just talk about how great it is. It's hard. It can be hard. But the key, the key is your willingness. And if you can find a way to keep that willingness coming to you and giving it back, because really when you give it back, it does come to you so much more than what you had to begin with. Um, And I look to my sponsor often for that sort of grand ability to... Keep us on the path we need to be on in a gentle, firm way. And she shows me that by being of service, you fill your cup up. And there's always somebody struggling. And what you can do is you can give them your presence. And I also think pausing for me, my higher power is in the pause. And if I can pause and I can say, What's the right next step for me that will make me the kind of person that I want to hang out with? I have to pause sometimes because we're bombarded with a lot of stuff. And right now, you know, the world is scary. And we can fall back into that fear. And we could go hide cupcakes in our closets. Um, But for today, I am not. And I hope that for those of you who are struggling, you just put one foot in front of the other and and you find your willingness where you can find it. And if you've lost your willingness, it's there. You just need to maybe shuffle things around a little bit, change your program a little bit, try a new meeting. This I came to this meeting for the first time last week, having heard about it for two and a half years, and it was like, oh, hallelujah. I am happy to be here. So that's it. That's what I do. And thank you so much. So I... Any time for a question? Are there any questions? Deanna. Thanks, Martha. Um, can you talk about your higher power? Yeah, I'd love to. So, I just repeat the question. 
The question is, can I describe, talk about my higher, I was going to just, can I talk about my higher power? And, you know, here's my thing about my higher power. I have a firm belief that we all descend from the same stardust. And that we're all made up of the same molecules, from the Big Bang or whatever. And so I don't have my own higher power. My higher power is, it's everyone and everything. When I'm feeling a need to connect directly with my higher power, I visualize a galaxy and an embrace which is two really big different things. But I know that when I'm really tuned into my higher power, and I forget all the time, and another thing my sponsor said was, spend two hours without your higher power at your side, which, it, you know, and then spend two hours with your higher power at your side. They are very, very different because you can turn stuff over. But I think the universe is my higher power. I think you're my higher power. I think when I physically can feel my higher power. It's the same as my absence. It's a cradle. It's something kind of, I almost feel like a liquid sense kind of run down my back of just being like fully supported by the universe. Um, and I also, my higher power and I, we joke. We, he, my higher power makes fun of me and I make fun of my higher power and then we're good. Because uh, I think humor for me is one of the things that saves me. It can be my crutch, but it also can save me. So I'll be like, hey, higher power, you're being a real tool. And my higher power will be like, no, you are. So anyway, thank you. Okay.